Well, it says I'm unmuted, so we must be on. Well, good afternoon, everyone. As Nelson said, it truly is beautiful up here on the mountaintop. I wish we could all be sitting under a pine tree for this, but I am. We had a nice rain for about 30 minutes at 10.30 this morning, and I suspect more this afternoon, but really very pleasant and beautiful. Well, let's get into the message for the day. How can we be assured that all these promises we've been talking about, that this deliverance we've discussed, restoral, the identical conditions, on and on it goes that I've covered the last several weeks and indeed over many years of messages essentially about the same thing, about how God is going to deliver his church in the end and how conditions will be, and it's almost like a fairy tale. It's almost unbelievable. When you think about it, what is he telling us? He's telling us that we're going to have the best conditions there have been since the Garden of Eden, that he is going to restore, so the climate is good all the time, with Adam and Eve, had they lasted that long in the Garden of Eden, they could have gone the entire year without clothes, without blankets, without anything to protect them from the weather at all, because God would have set the thermostat in a perfect position, and they would never have gotten too cold, too warm, too humid, too dry. They were in absolute are absolutely perfect living conditions. And he's told us in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, which are end-time chapters or end-time books, undoubtedly, because they say over and over and over in the latter days, uh, at, at the end times or before the day of the Lord, those expressions are used, oh, dozens of times, Throughout the prophecies, <clears throat> and in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, Christ echoes the same things about protection, about fleeing, and being protected from the armies of this world, and he's talking there about the end, because the disciples say, what is projected for the end, and when will your kingdom come and these things happen? So then he describes how there'll be a falling away, and because of sin, love will wax cold, and that then they will begin with earthquakes and all kinds of things. And then he says, they'll begin to kill you, and then he will deliver. You flee to a place that is safe. How do we know that? How can we be assured of that? Now, our experience so far in some ways, would leave us to doubt a little bit if we let it go there. You know, I began hearing in the early to mid-50s that there was some 19-year time, time cycles, and when they were done in 1972, the church would flee, and by 75, Christ would return to the earth. And that was preached very loudly, very strongly, 
Uh, Herbert Armstrong went to Petra and did films there and showed us where we were going to be. That didn't happen. And, if I'm reading the scriptures correctly, it isn't going to happen that way and in that place. It's going to be somewhere else and in a totally different way that I think God has showed us very clearly. <coughs> and we've been reading some of those scriptures here now in, in better understanding the last day of unleavened bread. We've read all those scriptures and gone through them, not all of them, but a lot of them, and echoed those promises. Now, when I look at the world around us today, uh, it's a world that is about to go into World War III. It doesn't lack very much or very long. It doesn't appear until that will now happen. I know I looked at it back in the late 60s, early 70s, and thought, how can this come together that fast when the world wasn't this way? Yeah, we had a Cold War, we had so on and so on going on, but society had not come apart like it has today. And so, it hasn't happened. Well, does that mean it's not going to? Does it mean God has not given us insight now that we understand the prophecies a whole lot better? But it is going to happen. How can you rest assured? How can you be confident that the things God is telling us as in terms of restoration, of restoral, of deliverance, and so on, how can we know that that is going to happen with absolute confidence? And I mean the kind of confidence that gives us absolute faith and trust in God that he will do these things we've been reading about. Because so far, we've not seen much in the way of any of it happening. It's all there to be read, but is it going to happen? Are you convinced of that? Do you believe that with all your heart? You need to. You need to believe that when God says something, it is inviolate. It is going to be the way he says it will be because he has that power to do that, and he does not lie. His word does not come back to him void. And if he promises something, he says it will happen. So what degree of belief do you have in your heart and mind at this point? Is it 50%, 75%, 95%? Is it 100%? That's a pretty high level of confidence, 100%. And yet that's the kind of confidence that we need. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> With Christ out in the boat, the disciples were there. And it began to storm, and the boat began to rock terribly. Thunder, lightning, rain. And the disciples got very, very afraid and were very concerned that they were all going to die. 
I don't know if you've been on a boat in that kind of conditions, but I have, with 35-foot waves going in different directions to each other in a very dangerous area north of Kodiak and south of Cook Inlet and Anchorage. And many, many boats have gone down in that section of water because you have tides coming or waves coming from at least three different directions all at once with certain storms and the tide running. And my sons have nearly been killed there, church members, and I went through it, and I'll tell you what, it is very, very frightening. The captain of the boat I was on was telling me about one of the kids in the church there, a teenager, and how he was laying on the floor, pounding his fist and screaming, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, because he was that scared as the boat went back and forth. Here the disciples were in that very same condition, and Christ was sleeping calmly, needed a nap, I guess. So they woke him up, panicked, scared, what are we going to do? He was very calm about it. He had 100% confidence that his father would take care of the situation. He didn't worry at all. He knew when he was going to die. He was told that. He'd known that all his life, really, probably most of it. And he knew the father was in control. He knew his father that well. We should come to know our Father and Jesus Christ that well, so that we don't fear. And he tells us over and over, doesn't he, through these prophecies, fear not. How much do we believe in? How afraid do we get when we read some of the alternative news? And it tells us about how this is going to happen, this is happening, something else is happening. Does it frighten us? Now, it doesn't hurt to be informed, as long as we have the faith to handle the information without becoming fearful. Because God says the fearful will not be in his kingdom. Why does he say that? Because fear is the opposite of faith. When we're afraid, we're not in trust of God. We don't believe him. Now you say, well, it was okay for Christ because he knew God that well, and he knew the future that well, and he believed it, and therefore he could be calm. But I'm not Jesus, and I don't know my future entirely. And on and on we can go to excuse our lack of confidence, our lack of utter trust and faith in God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. So we have to be solidly on the side of faith and trust and belief instead of fear and intimidation and worry and drawing back a little bit because we're tentative or afraid. And that tells us then that we don't know God that well. 
it tells us that we don't believe him when he says these things are going to happen. And we've been over them many, many times. I don't know how many times I've gone over all these promises of blessing in the last 27 years. Over and over and over. I was just talking to Nelson this morning. Uh, he has a tape ready in case we had trouble connecting or something. And he said, that tape given uh, back in about 98, maybe 97 even, sounds more true today than it did back then. Because a lot of these dents have occurred. A lot of bridge has, water has gone under the bridge. And what was said then is far more true because it's closer to happening and a lot of the things I was saying then actually have happened. Now, the way I want to approach this today, because it is so important that we believe God, that we know, how are you going to move forward in faith, believing and trusting, and at the same time overcoming and growing, if you don't have absolute confidence that God has showed you the way? that he has given these scriptures because they're going to happen. Does it give you inspiration to grow and overcome if you're beset with doubts, with worries, with concerns, with a certain amount of fear? Or is your mind clear because you have absolute faith and trust that everything God says is going to happen? Now, that is the place we need to aspire to be. We may be 90% there. We may be 50% there. It's an individual thing, and maybe the pendulum will swing back and forth a little bit, depending on conditions and how we're looking at things at the moment. Let me cite Peter again, where there were heavy waves, there was turbulence, and the disciples were out in a boat, and here comes Christ walking across the water. Now, he had, again, absolute confidence in his Father in heaven, absolute faith. He had power over the wind and the waves. He could say to the wind, be calm, and it would become calm. He could walk on the water because of faith in his Father in heaven that that which is impossible to do could be, I say impossible by the normal laws of nature that you and I live in or on. If we fall off a chair, we hit the ground or the floor, we hurt. If we fall out of a boat into the water, we have to struggle to swim and survive, because that's what gravity is. It's inexorable. It's always there. And yet Christ was defying it, because he has power over all things. And the laws that were set 
for us to live by as humans, he is above and beyond. Now, he has a code of conduct, which is inviolate. Uh, that has to be kept, and he and the Father live it perfectly. But as far as some of the other natural or physical laws of, say, science, they have the power to overcome. They have the power to suspend for the moment. So here was Christ walking across the water, and Peter sees him. And we know Peter's personality, and here's one of the reasons we do, is because he was very zealous. He was one to think that, yes, I can, yes, I can. Remember the little story I heard, you heard probably as a child, the little train that could. And it was climbing the hill, saying, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And it did. Now, if the little train had been saying, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, chances are it couldn't. But it was a matter of believing that it was possible and that it could overcome its own smallness and lack of power and do the job that it was trying to do. That's why I don't like to say or hear people say, I'll try. That, to me, means they are not absolutely convinced that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. They leave themselves an out. And that out is, I'll try. And if I tried and I fail, then it's okay. Because they justified failure ahead of time. We need to approach things with God of this is going to happen. <clears throat> I'm not going to try. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to make it happen. There's a great deal of difference in those two terms. Well, I'll try. Or, I'm going to make this happen with God's help. Always add that. Because try might not be enough, and with God's help, if we believe in him, then we can make it positive. I will do it with his help. And then you will. God takes no pleasure in those that draw back, but those that move forward to the saving of the soul. Paul made that so very clear in the book of Hebrews. Do you believe him? Now let's go into some scriptures today because I want to affirm in your mind <clears throat> that you believe with all your heart that these things we've been talking about aren't just fairy tales. They aren't just vanities. Fantasies, I mean. They are statements of fact from the great God of the universe. And if you can't believe him, who can you believe? Let's go first to Isaiah 5. We've been over this several times, and we know that there in John 17, 18, well, 15, 14 through 18, we read every Passover, that at the beginning of that dissertation, 
He claimed he was the vine and we're the branches. So he himself very clearly referred to the church that was about to be built through those disciples to be a vine and that we're the branches and we have to produce fruit by being attached to the vine. That's to him. Now, the connection between a vine and the branches is very, very tight. You have the vine growing up, and then you have the branches that branch out of the main stem, and they are very strongly connected to the stem. They're able to hold leaves up. They're able to hold ripe fruit up and not break and fall off in most cases, unless the fruit is so very, very heavy. Um, in some cases, that can happen. So you go out and you prop the branch up. The connection is strong enough, so the weight of the burden it carries does not break it if it is propped up. To whom? Propped up to the vine. And we have to be propped to that vine. That's why I say we need to be very, very close to Christ. You read, in another analogy, throughout the scriptures, how there's a connection, a marriage connection, between Christ and the church. Was with ancient Israel, but ancient Israel failed to live up to her responsibility as both an engaged woman, and as a wife. She was not faithful. She was not strong or true. She did not follow the dictates of her husband, who was perfect, who never gave her bad advice, who never asked her to do anything illegal, who was a perfect example to her. And yet she saw other loves and lovers that she wanted to pursue. So because she failed to trust him completely and entirely, there was a divorce. Now he started a new covenant. It's a marriage covenant with the church. And he expects us to live up to the terms of that covenant in a way that ancient Israel did not. And the New Testament goes through that every direction, hither and yon, backward and forward, to explain that. And he gives instructions to humans as husbands and wives on how they are to react to each other and how that they are to be so very, very close to each other. Go back and read the song of songs, if you don't believe that, and see how close he wants a husband and wife to be. And if they aren't like the Song of Songs, then there are things in the New Testament, old as well, that they are not living up to, and therefore they don't have that kind of closeness. Now, he tells us that we are the engaged bride. And if there's a time that a couple physically is closest, is it not during the engagement period? Because they are getting to know each other. They're looking for the good in each other. 
they're trying to believe that this person is someone they can live with in mad, mad happiness throughout their lives. And they promise forever, and they make all kinds of promises. Now, they are very, very close, generally, or should be, during that engagement period. And then when they get married, there are other things that they are then allowed to do that they were not allowed to do before getting married that should draw them even closer. So they should be one flesh. You talk to one or you talk to the other, and it's the same. And we are to be that way with Christ as in being engaged to him to be married at his return. How close are we to him? How close is it when we talk to him? Do we feel communication going back and forth from his words that he has spoken that we know and our words that we feed back to him? Is there a connection or are we just talking to the ceiling? <clears throat> How close truly are we? Now he says his sin, our sins cut us off from him. They impair our communication because he does not sin and he does not think sin. He thinks righteousness. And when we're thinking a different way, then that gets in the way of our communication. So we have to clean up our act if we expect to be that close. And that, indeed, is what we should expect. Now, when Peter walked out on that water, he was looking at Christ. And lo and behold, Peter was walking on the water. His looking to Christ, his focus on Christ, caused Christ to suspend gravity under Peter. Then what happened? Peter looked down, he took his eyes off Christ, and sank. We can do enormous, incredible things if we look to the Father and the Son with a great focus. And it says that the church will do great and wonderful things in the end. Do we believe it? God said, he said to the disciples that they would. And you know what? They walked on water. They raised the dead. Do you believe that? And it says that his disciples become apostles with his greater things even than he did when he was here. And in one sense, Paul raising up the guy that fell out of the balcony, or Peter raising someone, are greater than what he did. Why? Because he was the Son of God. He had all trust and faith in his Father, 100%. And I doubt if Peter and Paul lived up to that completely. Paul even said, the things I want to do, I don't seem to all get done. 
things I don't want to do, I wind up doing or thinking. So they were less than perfect. And yet they were working toward absolute and faith and confidence in God. That was their goal. That was their purpose. And they were pretty close to it by the time they did the things that they did. On the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, God gave them incredible confidence and strength to say the things they did, to do the things they did, their shadows passing over people, healing them. Their level of confidence in God went up a great deal on that one day when the Holy Spirit came. They saw tons of fire, and the things that Christ had told them began to happen. And they could even speak in languages they didn't know. That doesn't happen without an absolute miracle from God. Do you believe it? Now, those are things that they saw. You and I weren't there on that day of Pentecost. All we can read is the account. Is that enough? Is there enough belief in the Word of God that that's enough for you and me? Well, let's finally get then to Isaiah 5. Because here he talks about his vineyard, the church. The church in the end time, because Isaiah is written about the latter days. So he's talking about the church today. Now the reason I'm coming here and going to some other scriptures if I have time today, is because I, because I want us to look at some of the things God said back here, and then assess in our own minds if it was true. Are these things true? What have you and I not just read, but seen? Have we seen all these promises I've been reading you out of these scriptures happen? I mean, the good ones. The having the Garden of Eden. A situation that has not been known since the original Garden of Eden, and he says it's actually literally going to be there for his end-time remnant, and they will have the blessings of the Garden of Eden. The weather will be perfect. The rainfall or the dew will be perfect. Everything will be perfect. He tells us in Isaiah 41, you will up trees or churches in the wilderness. And they will be blessed in ways that they never have before. And they don't even need money. Come and have uh, milk and wine without money. What a society that will be. He says the church will have the greatest store of gold and treasures on earth. So here will be a little kingdom with perfect weather, with the greatest riches of any kingdom or nation on earth, Christ living with them, dwelling with them, as Zechariah 2 tells us, and 
and no thorns and no thistles instead of the thorn, the fir tree, it says. And on and on it goes. We've heard these. We've read them. Do you believe it? Is it right in front of us, not very far away in these latter days? All right. Let's go to Isaiah 5 then and see if there's something here that we have witnessed that should give us faith and confidence that all these promises we've been reading about are actually going to happen. What does he say about his church? I will sing to my well-beloved. This is that he's, which he is engaged to. The apple of his eye, as he calls us in Zechariah 2. The church in the end time, especially that remnant, is the apple of his eye. Now that is pretty focused, it's pretty meaningful, and it should give us an awful lot of confidence that he loves us. So he says this to his well-beloved, to his engaged bride, the 144,000. Us are part of it. We are part of it. So he sings this song of his beloved touching the vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. So he gave the church, planted a vineyard in a very fruitful field. Excellent doctrine, knowledge of his Sabbath, his holy days, which he tells us, are a sign between us and him, back in Exodus, and I read one this morning, wherever it was, uh, saying the same thing in one of these prophecies about the end time. So, a very fruitful hill, <clears throat> great doctrine. <clears throat> That's what the end time church would have. And he started it, I believe, through Herbert Armstrong, who preached the Sabbath and the Holy Days, and many of the doctrinal foundation things that we understand that other religions don't. So he gave it a fruitful field, revealed to Herbert Armstrong, those foundational doctrines. I read them. I went back into the Bible, blew the dust off it. I was just a kid, but I started reading the Bible and beginning to prove that we ought to go to Passover and Feast of Tabernacles and keep the weekly Sabbath and all those things I could see and read in the Bible. So that gave me a level of confidence that the church was indeed of God because it was teaching things that the Bible said. One of the most vivid memories I have, I guess, being eight, nine years old then, <clears throat> was we read an article or a booklet or wherever we got it from the church that said we weren't to eat unclean animals and fish and so on. And right there it was in Scripture. And even in the New Testament, the passages that the Protestant churches use to show that it's okay to kill and eat unclean things or that Peter or Paul saw, and the people have tried to interpret that God was doing away with something, but if you look at the context carefully, you find 
that that isn't what it was saying at all. And Peter even said it. God wasn't showing me how to eat pigs. He was showing me that no man is common or unclean, and that even the Gentile dogs, as they were referred to, could be a part of spiritual Israel. And they weren't unclean. They weren't dogs anymore. They were affianced to Christ as part of his bride. That was a huge understanding for Peter, because he had always looked at anybody who was not of Israelite blood as unclean, filthy, defiled. And then he realized, he's not telling me I can eat unclean things. He's telling me not to call a man unclean because if he's converted and is baptized and has the Spirit of God, he's just as clean as Peter was, as clean as Paul, as clean as Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. Cleansed and, be, and grafted in, is the way Paul put it in Romans 11, to the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the vine, the church, <laughs> that they are grafted into. They become part of the plant. They're attached to the stem. So we read those things and saw that the Protestants were wrong. That the things they taught were absolutely wrong. So I remember we were still going to the Methodist church. And somebody had told Horace Brooks, a little bald-headed pastor, I remember him well. So we didn't believe in the cleaning, or we did believe in the cleaning and unclean laws. I don't know whether my dad went to them, my uncle, or, but it got, it got to him in some way. But we wouldn't eat pigs anymore. So I remember the sermon. 15, 20 minutes of God cleansed all things. And he cited those New Testament passages, which we had already come to understand in the context, weren't saying what he said they were at all. It was so clear. And we walked out of the Methodist church that day and never went back because they were teaching just the opposite of what the Scripture says. So God gave Herbert Armstrong these foundational true scriptures that you and I live by. Tithings, another good one. They didn't believe in tithing there in the Methodist Church, or hardly in any of the others. Mormons do, a few do, but not very many. You just had your little offering thing in the pew in front of you that you could put an offering in when they passed the plate around. They didn't understand God's tithing laws, which are inviolate and are necessary for salvation. God will have his 10%. And he makes it very clear, it's just as clear as the Sabbath is, that that's the way we are to live. And What's wrong with that? God gives us ten tenths, and we just give one tenth back to him, well, two tenths sometimes, in gratitude, thanksgiving, and praise 
gratitude for what he has done to us in giving us ten tenths, and then we should be so thankful for having been given what we've been given that we're so happy to give 10% back. God loves a cheerful giver. And if we are a cheerful giver of the things that God has told us to do, then we have some attitude adjustment ahead of us. Because we don't believe those scriptures that tell us to do that. We might already believe the one about the Sabbath. We might believe about the holy days. We might believe about clean and unclean if we read it. But we read about tithing, and we say, wait a minute here. Even though it's so very, very clear, Old Testament and New Testament, and I can show it in both, we have trouble with that. A lot of people had trouble with that. And they have an attitude about it because it went into their pocket and it comes back out of their pocket. And they don't like that because they want it all. A spirit of greed. I told you the story about the one guy, well, there have been more than that, but in one case, someone you and I both know who read Malachi 4. I think it's four, three or four, where God says, I'll open the windows of heaven and bless you if you will obey me. Of course, the book of Malachi shows all kinds of things that we're not doing as a church. And then he uses that as an example. And he says, if you'll just obey me and do all the things I say, including that, I'll bless you by opening the windows of heaven. So this guy says, okay, I'll do that. And he did it for a little while, and the windows of heaven didn't seem to just open immediately and give him everything he wanted, desired, or dreamed of. So he says, I'm never going to do that again. God doesn't do what he says he'll do. Now there's somebody who doesn't believe God. He still believes he's a Christian. He still believes he's an apostle. But he doesn't believe God or God's word, which means he's a liar and a thief. I know him. Most of you know him. I'm not saying names, but there are a lot of people with that kind of attitude. If God doesn't bless me immediately, then his word is not true. And that's kind of the basis of this sermon. Do we believe well, I'm still not getting to it here on this, but that's okay. What I'm saying is needed. All right, let's go to our experience now back in Isaiah 5. So here's this fruitful hill, given these good doctrines. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine. That's Christ. And built a tower in the midst of it. They had a tower in the vineyards to keep the foxes from coming in and eating the grapes. And also made a wine press therein. He expected it to produce, otherwise he wouldn't build a wine press. You don't expect ripe grapes, then what do you need a wine press for? So he expected it. 
and he looked, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Here it was attached to the great vine, wonderful vine that was well watered, well fertilized, great doctrine, and yet the fruit thereof didn't turn out to be what he wanted. Now, he planted the New Testament church. Did it always produce the fruit that he wanted? No, it did not, if you read the scriptures. There were those who rebelled. There were those who had personal animosity against the preachers, like Paul, who said Alexander did him great damage. So there were those in the church. They were there. But were they producing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace? Or were they producing uh, gossip? Were they producing uh, division? And so on and so forth, the works of the flesh? Yes, they were. Did there come to be a great falling away? Yes, there did. So even though he gave the disciples wonderful teachings, everything absolutely correct. <clears throat> and they passed that along, and a lot of people more or less believed it, but then they believed it less, and they fell away, and troubles came. So we see that record. Well, what about your experience and mine? Is it the same now as it was then? God wrote Isaiah 5 a long, long, long time ago. And he says that a dissertation about the end times. Therefore, we should be able to read Isaiah and see if the things here are coming to pass. Now, the beautiful things that Isaiah wrote have not yet come to pass, but they're in the same book and even some of it in the same chapters as the things that we have seen come to pass. So, let's read on. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. He says, let's make a comparison between me the Lord Christ and the church. That's the contrast we're making here. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done it in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. Can you find any fault with Christ? He called Herbert Armstrong right on time. He gave them correct doctrines right from the Bible. Doctrines we prove the Methodists, the Baptists, the Mormons, the Catholics, all had wrong. Planted us in a very fruitful field. What more could he have done for us? And now go to. I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof. He built a fence around it to protect it. I'll take that away. And it shall be eaten up. 
and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. Now this is talking about his church in the latter days here in Isaiah. Do you begin to recognize anything here that you have actually seen and witnessed? Things you cannot disavow or disprove in any way because you have experienced it and it's written right here thousands of years ago for you to read in the latter days to make you believe there is a God who is true to his word. In my experience, what he's beginning to describe here, I have watched. I've been through it. I've seen the wall torn down by people who did not understand truly the truth and led the church right back into Babylon. I've seen it come apart. The protection that God had given it spiritually and physically was simply removed, and it fell apart and got sold off. Those beautiful, beautiful campuses, all three of which I personally walked and lived on two of them. One is in high school before the college was established in Big Sandy, and then in Pasadena, where I lived for four years, and I saw the beauty in just the physical things that God had provided, as well as the spiritual. I lived it. I saw it. I walked the streets of it. I took classes in some of the most beautiful buildings on the face of the earth that God had provided for this man from Oregon who had nothing when he arrived in Pasadena and thought he ought to build a college and didn't have the money, didn't have the spot, didn't have anything, and it just opened up. Billionaires' mansions I have lived in with the finest woods from all over the world. How could that be? except God had done everything for it and hedged it about. And then I saw the hedge removed. I experienced it. I helped build what was there. And I saw it torn apart. I worked in those woods in Big Sandy. I cut the vines and the junk out of the trees so we could build places for people to come live in little huts for the Feast of Tabernacles. I helped prepare the ground for the college with my own hands. And in Pasadena, I helped care for what God had put there and live in and walk the halls of those billionaires' mansions. Been there, done that, saw that. And then I saw it all come apart. That's what we're reading right here. I'll break it down. I will lay it waste, verse 6. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns, named to touch, and others. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. 
Quit receiving good doctrine, that thing which makes things grow. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Hebrews 12, 23, it says the church is also called Israel and Judah and all in Jerusalem. And all these things from these prophecies right here. And Paul is saying that these names, when you go back and read the prophecies, apply to the church, to Christ and the church of the firstborn. He also includes there. So when it says Israel here, it's talking about spiritual Israel. The church, the mother of us all, he says in Galatians. So there's no question that this applies to the church today. This is the vineyard he planted. Go back to John again. That's what he told the disciples. I'm planting you, or I'm planting me as the vineyard, and you are the branches. That's the church. And he started another vine here in the, I mean the uh, end time. And I was going to go today to Ezekiel 17 and review that again, but I probably won't have time and show that it is, indeed, what has been going on. So, the vineyard is the church, the New Testament Latter-day Church. And he looks for judgment, but behold, oppression. A lot of people felt oppression from a lot of the ministers in the local churches. You all have war stories. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. We began to live in confusion and frustration and cry out to God for help of some kind in the confusion. Woe to them that join house to house and lay field to field for there be no place that to be placed alone in the midst of the earth. In your ears, says the eternal host, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair, without inhabitants. So he says, it's in vain to, be, to have all these churches, all these congregations, all these spiritual houses. Now, it's referring to physical as well, of our nation, of this nation, building the mansions everywhere, and no place for any privacy or aloneness. But it's referring to the church, which have lots of congregations all over the world. Then what happened? Of the truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair without inhabitants. Most of those churches, congregations, that were established by worldwide are simply gone. They're not there anymore. Desolate. Yes, yes, ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of the homer shall yield an ephah. Have you and I experienced that? Have I seen it with my own eyes? I've recited how I went down to Miami when I was still in Charlotte. Uh, I think that was probably in 97, thereabouts. And a lot of people heard that I was coming down. They were connected in one way or another, the Church of the Great God. And they invited other people to come, and we had pretty good-sized audience there for those days. Uh, I don't remember now, but it seems like there were like 
40, 50 people. So I began asking them, how big is the church that you went to? Well, it's gone. <laughs> how about if you wanted to have a Feast of Tabernacles or something important? How many do you think of those that were there would show up today? And the general consensus I got for most of them was probably about 10%. <laughs> That's all that was left. When I was went to Miami in the first place in 1966, my first pastorate, there were maybe 100, 125 people there that were being pastored out of Lakeland, and the, the pastor there only came down on the weekend. Maybe he'd be around Sunday for some needs, but there were 100, 125 people that attended, and that was all when I got there. And by the time I left, four years later, there were 600. God had been adding like crazy, and I was running day and night, literally, trying to see all the new people who had requested visits. And this wasn't just down there. I'm not saying it was because of me. It wasn't at all. It was happening all over the country, and it was growing by leaps and bounds. New congregations springing up everywhere. When I left there, there were about 600, from 100 to 600 in four years. Then I went back in about 97, and they would have to scrape to get together 10%, 60, of what had been 600. And not only that, it had grown after I left there. The growth continued, and then there was a Miami church, and that was all there was in that end of Florida. A few years later, there was one in Fort Lauderdale. There was one over on the West Coast. There were several in South Florida, so it had grown way beyond the 600 that were there when I left. McMansions, you might say, of churches. So ten acres would yield one bath. Woe to them that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink. People began to be drunken. They began to do all kinds of things they shouldn't do. They continue until night, till wine employed them. And the harp and the viol, the tabret and the pipe and wine are in their feast, but they regard not the work of the eternal, neither consider the operation of his hands. As Ezekiel 17 begins to illustrate, that which God wanted to be a tree had become a low-growing vine that turned its heart to Herbert Armstrong rather than to God. And he's describing the same thing here in different words. We began to look more to the man in the jet aircraft than we did to God. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. They don't, they're not paying attention to the true knowledge. And their honorable men are famished. The ministry lost its focus, lost its power, lost its determination to serve God, and their multitude dried up with thirst. 
That sounds like Ezekiel 5, a third by a famine and pestilence, a third by a spiritual warfare, and a third taken captive back into the world. It applies to the church. I have experienced that, brethren, and so have you. We have lived this. And it's one of those old prophecies back there. Therefore, hell has enlarged herself and opened her her mouth without measure, the grave. And their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he that rejoices shall descend into it. The pomp of fine buildings, jet airplanes. Is there anything wrong with those things? No. But if you put too much emphasis on them, you lose your direction and emphasis with God Almighty. And that's what we did. That's idolatry. And the average man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled. It happened to ministers and the congregations. And the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. If we've been bragging lately about how great the church is and how it's gone from 150,000 to 150 million, no, we sure haven't. Then shall the lambs feed after their manner, and the waste places of the fat ones shall strangers eat. No longer were things being done that caused God to bless. Woe to them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as it were with a cart rope. Have we read Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23 and Malachi 1 about how the ministry would not do what they should do? and how the people were sacrificed in so many ways. We all have our stories, don't we? We saw this. We witnessed this. Do you believe it? Boy, I sure do. I went through it. I saw it all happen. But say, let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it. But his work hasn't happened, and we haven't seen it, have we? And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come, that we may know it. So here we've been, in confusion, the walls torn down, and it all fell apart. And we're saying, let the Holy One come. But it hasn't happened. Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, and put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Exchanging the good things of God for the things and the emphasis and focus of this world. And I could go on and on about that. Both of them that are mighty to drink wine, not mighty to pray, not mighty to study, not mighty to, to look to God, but hey, let's drink to this which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteousness from him. The Kachas did that, gave us false doctrine, one after another, and drew completely away from God. Verse 24, middle of it, because they have cast away the law of the eternal of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore is the anger of the Eternal kindled against his people, and he has stretched forth his hand against them, has smitten them, 
and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still, and he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far, and will hiss to them from the end of the earth, and they shall come with speedily. None shall be weary, nor stumble among them. Do you see a change here? He says, what would happen? And now he's saying, it's all going to change. We won't be weary anymore. Whose arrows are sharp, and all their bows bent. Their horses soon shall be counted like flint, and their wheels like a whirlwind. Doesn't he tell us he's going to make us a sharp threshing instrument? There in Isaiah 41 and Micah 4. Yes, he does. And all these blessings are going to come. Now, where do you start disbelieving? I just read you a passage and threw in a lot of other stuff of things that I have experienced and seen with my own eyes, have lived through, and been confused and frustrated like it says we would be. I believe that. I believe it with all my heart because I saw it with my own eyes. I experienced it. I went through being spewed out of Christ's mouth myself for not being what I ought to have been. We have been in a repenting mode, I hope, because we have lived this and seen it. So the question then on the table, do we believe it? Do we believe 100% with all our hearts that the things we read about in Isaiah 5 that tore the church apart happened? Well, do you see it around? I think it happened. I believe it happened. I know it happened. I don't try to believe it. I know it. I experienced it. I felt it. I've lived frustrated in it. Frustrated with myself. Frustrated with the church. Because of me and because of us. I believe that 100%. I can't not believe it because I saw it, I felt it, I experienced it. Now, let's turn the page like he just did at the end of Isaiah 5. And he tells us all these wonderful things that will come of it if we do repent. And I have to having read what I then experienced, believe he's going to do those wonderful things because I have to trust that they are true because he wrote what he wrote about how bad it would get. And I've only scratched the surface today in one little chapter. We've read dozens of them. And we experienced all of them. Now, does not all this negativity then cause us to believe the things that God says? If he says it's going to be bad, and then it gets bad, I have to believe he keeps his word. Now, then he turns around <clears throat> and says it's going to get good. 
He's given me enough experience with his word coming true of all these evil things that I have no excuse whatsoever to say these wonderful things are not going to come to pass. Because if he could cause what he wrote thousands of years ago to come to pass in your life and mine, then what he says will happen next as restoral, as refurbishment, as deliverance, are going to come to pass. It's inevitable. The only thing that could stop it is if there's no remnant who is faithful and believes it and ready to follow him when he causes it to happen. But there are still people, and I've experienced this, who are seeking repentance, who are trying to do what they were told to do, and believe that they are going to accomplishment because they don't draw back and they push forward with confidence and faith in the truth of God that he will do what he says. And he gave us the rainbow from Noah as proof that he's going to do these things as well. And I saw one yesterday afternoon that went from horizon to horizon in a beautiful display of the rainbow, and it had one under it that wasn't quite as bright, but it was also horizon to horizon. Just breathtaking in beauty. And God says that these promises at the end time are as the rainbow of Noah to him. And that rainbow is still there. I saw it just yesterday. I have to 100% believe that these promises are true and will come to pass. I'm not here to try to believe it. I'm not here to hope it happens. I'm here to believe it with all my heart and know that God's Word is true and perfect and He has done to me what He said He would do to me. And I believe that He will bless me if I do what He said for me to do. I'm not going to try. I'm going to be what I need to be with the help of Almighty God in the sermon.